Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. And I'm Adam Grossman. Adam, it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. It's nice to, to be able to do this again. And as we, we come to the end of the second season of this podcast, Adam and I wanted to get together and round out the season, but also talk about some of the key things that we've really covered in the course of the season. There's been many topics that we've hit on and some really at length. So we wanted to come together and wrap those up and put a bow on those before we take a little break and come back next fall. Yeah, excited to do that and looking forward to kind of talking about as you said, some things that we wanted to discuss from wrapping up in terms of some of the topics that really started to resonate throughout uh, the beginning and first half of 2022. And then also kind of look at some of the things that have more bubbled up more recently and potentially things to consider in the future as we head into next season. One of the things that comes up for me the most that we've covered a lot on this podcast with good reason, I think is, is name, image, and likeness. We had guests over the past few months that work in that space, that work in the university space, that are looking to sort of carve out that space and it's a fascinating one because it's shifting and changing so much yeah and i think the uh, recently my my company excel sports for this uh for the first anniversary of uh name image and likeness being a part uh, of college sports uh published an article that featured some of the analysis that we did and some of the particularly focused around uh, march madness and who were some of the top athletes for march madness and what was their overall nil value um, some of the things that we've saw from that, which has been consistent with some of the things that other people have found, um, one is that um, there definitely is significant and substantial value from athletes being generated from NIL. Um, our analysis just around March Madness showed it into the hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of overall value being generated, um, but also that men, men and women's athletes also could have sus- substantial impact uh, from a value perspective and value creation perspective. Um, one of the things that we do like to, you know, one of the things that we do like to highlight is that um, both men's and women's athletes are, are good at targeting the types of audiences that um brands find attractive in working with partnerships, but it's maybe not always in the ways that you would think. Uh, For example, um, you know, women's sports actually uh, does not necessarily target women as consumer or women or female audiences. Um, There are certainly are generating uh, large, having large reach and targeting, you know, audiences that are attracted to brands, uh, particularly from an income, ethnicity, education perspective, but not necessarily in the way, you know, not just necessarily that uh, women's sports would target women, you know, men's sports and women's sports can uh, typically target male audiences, but are are effective in targeting uh, attractive uh, audiences. Um, Just, you know, we just don't want to simply base it off demographic attributes, but the overall takeaway is that, right, athletes are generating significant value. NIL is certainly continuing to evolve and it's because those athletes are generating significant value um, uh, through their capabilities in, from, in an NIL world. When you talk about generating significant value in sort of the analysis that, that you all did, that value is that the, the generating is for the brands, for themselves, a combination of the two? Yeah, it's a, I think it's more a combination of the both. Uh, so the idea is that um, when you're the way that we are, the way that I look at it and my, and the, my company where it looks at overall valuation of assets, whether they're uh, teams, leagues, events, athletes, um, is to say what is the value that's being generated from a, a brand from both a revenue and overall marketing perspective or a return on investment or return on objective perspective. So the way we break that down in terms of NIL value is what is the reach, particularly the reach of conversation around an athlete 
what is the sentiment? So is conversation positive or negative? Is it reaching an attract, is the conversation around that athlete and um, the content around that athlete reaching an attractive audience? Um, from our perspective, we look at, um, typically look at six demographic attributes, which are age, income, ethnicity, gender, uh, education status, and parental status. Um, then we also look at, you know, how do, you know, we look at throughout the marketing funnel, particularly how do top of marketing funnel objectives such as brand awareness, brand engagement, brand sentiment, how does that potentially translate into revenue growth? Then we also look at draft status, uh, what is the program and what is the sport that they're participating in? So when you put all of those different factors together, that is how do, the athlete's performance is based on, and we're not talking about necessarily on court, on field performance, but right. that is a component potentially of overall value creation. So if essentially are these athletes able to generate um, the, uh, the right message, uh, are they able to generate and communicate with, uh, generate the right message at the, with the right audience at the right time to drive the right behaviors that are most attractive to two companies from a return on investment and return on objective perspective. That's how they generate value. And that's how they generate value both for themselves and generate value or generate value based on their uh, personal activities. But those personal activities translate into value for companies. In the work that you do for the company, do you see brands and sports entities in general or brands that typically work with with sports, whether that be stadiums or teams or leagues and so on, do they have the interest in this name, image, image and likeness and having college athletes represent them in some way? Whether that's, you know, I, I think what's weird for me sometimes is to think, you think of sort of that national spokesperson, right? And maybe pro athlete or actor. I don't see those as the NIL deals that are happening now, but you could see layer, layers down, especially more targeted from a local perspective. Yeah, it will, certainly companies are interested in athletes. My company has uh, recently had a uh, article featuring the work we've done with Outback Steakhouse in terms of helping them identify uh, athletes from a football and basketball perspective. Um, particularly uh, with the Outback teammates program. But I think to your larger point, yes, we see there definitely are certain, you know, it's similar to, this is similar to professional athletes. There certainly are professional athletes who have national or international campaigns, but there's a lot of athletes who have more regional or local campaigns because they can resonate with uh, uh, that audience. And I think that's similar from a college sports perspective. Um, sometimes, you know, companies, uh, uh, an article I wrote recently, um, showed how Boost Mobile leveraged NIL in order to drive in-store traffic by having specific athletes go to targeted geographies um, and, and have in-store appearances in ways that drove foot traffic to stores and ended up increasing revenue um, in, in substantial ways. So that can be a combination of both, right? It's leveraging a group uh, of athletes potentially to hit specific regions in order to generate value. So I think it can be both. You're, you're, I think you're right. Is that one of the, some of the, a lot of the times when we do analysis of athletes, one of the things our, my company has is something that can do keyword and topic analysis, essentially look at what are the keywords and topics of interest for a specific audience as it compares to a general population. And that often when you look at a specific athlete, the geography um, where they attend college is typically the, there are a lot of keywords and topics around that geography that populate and percolate. So it's definitely something that companies do take a look at is, is this, is this, does this athlete have 
national and potentially international reach, but more like it, more likely does it have local, regional, or what are called demographic marketing areas or DMA uh, specific reach that we can then use to work with that athlete to target target um, consumers or uh, audiences in that specific uh, geography. If you look at it from a television perspective, there's what 200 and something, 300 something DMAs, and you can get yeah. very granular in that. But I always think about it in my own college experience. There, if you live in the Chicagoland area. Yeah. or went to school like in the Midwest at Purdue where I went to undergrad there was always Bob Roman was a car dealership no free right. ads here but they have ads in Chicago <laughs> too to me and all that I've thought about NIL in a lot of ways like that is a perfect scenario for someone at Purdue right Yeah. they may not get the national level from basketball maybe these days Jaden Ivey just went fifth in the draft or something but football or whatever they're not going to get the national deals but on a local level in West Lafayette Indiana they are it, famous quote unquote and it's a good logical tie-in i think that one thing michelle meyer that we had on the podcast last week who started the nil network and she works at san diego state she has a volleyball background and one interesting point that she was making is that volleyball swimming really sort of niche sports there's a lot of opportunity for those athletes because there's such a big following in volleyball, beach volleyball, and so on, or swimming. And even though they're not a men's basketball, women's basketball, or football athlete, there's still really good opportunities for them as well. Yeah, I think on your Purdue point, it's definitely a point well taken. I mean, obviously, at, um, even with the football team, obviously, Drew Brees, when he had his successful campaign at Purdue, there are opportunities for, um, you know, obviously, Purdue is a Big Ten school. You know, obviously the Big Ten looks like it's going to be growing in size and in reach as well. So if you're talking about through the conferences potentially have national reach and do athletes, even at what are maybe have traditionally been smaller schools, potentially have national reach, particularly given the expansive media presence that some of these conferences will have. You know, that's certainly something that we look into and probably something that will have um, require further analysis. But yes, I think your point of if I'm looking to reach you know, if I'm a local company that's looking to reach my local audience, which are the influencers, you know, for lack of a better term, that have the most reach with my target audience, college athletes definitely fit the bill. And that's something that would be uh, worth uh, considering. Um, it is one, but certainly not the only reason that, you know, there's been, which we may talk about in more detail, and I think we've talked about in previous podcasts, um, university collectives where groups of uh, donors or groups of interested parties who at the university would potentially work together. One of the reasons to do that is to, you know, the, the, the people who are typically, or some people who are typically part of those collectives are those local vendors, those local companies that really do want to work with athletes because it is beneficial. Hey, it's obviously they want the potentially want the best athletes to come to their schools, but also they, they see a return on investment. They see a way to engage with their customers and create, you know, unique experiences, unique content, unique connection points. Um, and that's a way to do that in a way that can be both beneficial to the athlete, beneficial to the company, and then beneficial to the school. Um, in terms of your second point, I think that's from our perspective, um, I think that's really important, right? You, certainly women's basketball, men's basketball, and football are certainly the, the three main sports right now that are generating the most on a per um, on a dollar amount basis from an NIL perspective. But whether it's women, you, you mentioned women's volleyball, women's gymnastics, particularly men's baseball, um, potentially men's swimming and men swimming and diving, men's golf is another one where there certainly are opportunities for stars. Um, whether you know stars, depending on how you define stars, but stars can you know can have a different definition. Not just their on you know again, not just their performance um, through their athletic performance, but also through their ability to connect with fans, whether in um, 
you know, uh, social media, um, particularly um, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, TikTok, um, Twitch, uh, but also, you know, create uh, media attention, other more traditional channels, whether that's digital channels, broadcast channels, radio channels, um, you know, you you have the opportunity with a college platform to platform to potentially become a star. You know, you know it's obviously less likely potentially in other sports, but it certainly is an opportunity, an avenue. And you know that uh, college sports does give you a platform in order to raise your profile in certain ways that can be attractive to companies. And also, if you know, if there are a lot of audiences, uh, uh, both from a local, regional, national perspective, that may have certain interests or the interests of that sport have ripple effects that also have other similar interests that can be attractive. So, you know, it could be that people, you know, there could be correlations between people who like volleyball and a certain interest, activity, or passion that is attractive to companies as well. So even with a smaller audience, if you're able to reach a highly engaged but smaller audience, um, that it can have significant value um, as well and something that um, is something worth exploring in more detail. Yeah, for sure. We had Zach Oliver on, on the podcast yeah. earlier this this quarter or this year. And he was doing an interesting thing around the marketplaces, right? You yeah. mentioned the collectives. That's sort of one path that, that continues to evolve and emerge. And, and we see big deals inside of that. Another that I have seen is these marketplaces. And actually, last week, Michelle Meyer talked about that as well. Yeah. I, I guess I'm kind of interested because the technology portion is underneath it. But have you come across those and sort of the work that you've done? Or is that more sort of individual athletes or our brands looking to use those types of marketplaces to, to sort of source them? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. There certainly are several marketplaces. You know, obviously you mentioned Zach, you mentioned Michelle. Uh, there's uh, marketplaces like uh, Open Doors, Open Sponsorship, Influencer that are all trying to, you know, one of the challenges I think which you articulated earlier is, you know, our brands looking to do this. And part of the challenge is like, where do I even start as a brand? Like, how do I even identify athletes? How do I partner with athletes? Is there a way to reduce the friction to partner with athletes so I can launch these types of campaigns? And that's, you know, it's certainly a value out of these marketplaces is let's identify. And even what you were talking about for potentially non, uh, you know, outside of those big three sports that we talked about, women's basketball, men's basketball and football, how do I connect with those athletes? And is there a platform or if I'm a, a brand that's looking to work with athletes in a variety of different schools and a variety of different geographies and across a variety of different sports, certainly is a strong use case to work with a marketplace to do that. Uh, one of the challenges with the marketplace, and this is something that, um, you know, uh, my company does look into as part of our overall NIL offering and activities and um, is do marketplaces potentially undervalue athletes? Um, do they say because you're kind of like a better term doing kind of a potentially doing not always, but potentially doing like a bulk model where we're trying to find, you know, um, if we're working, you know, we we can see what the price points are across multiple different athletes, try to, you know, work, you know, create combined campaigns that would leverage multiple athletes in a way that could potentially drive down pricing or trying to get price efficiencies that come from a marketplace that without substantial um, information, insights and valuation that maybe you're potentially undervaluing athletes. And certainly, you know, I, I don't think that's always the case, but certainly is a case and certainly something that we want to be cognizant of. But yes, I think there's marketplaces, not just in NIL, but generally, I mean, that's one of the features of marketplaces. It can bring buyers and sellers together. It can reduce 
friction in the process. It can create price transparency and it can facilitate transactions in ways that can be beneficial to both parties. But with the understanding that because unlike the, you know, something like the stock market that typically is something called spot trading where, you know, prices are set by and, and people, you know, trade on those prices based on prices being set, you know, it's not in hopefully something close to an efficient market or a more efficient market. You know, the NIL is not necessarily an efficient marketplace yet. And the idea of developing whatever that pricing model would be is still, you know, still in its infancy as it should be, right? It's only been a year and it's not necessarily, there's going to be um, tweaks and adjustments that people will make from a pricing and value uh, creation perspective that constantly needs to be to monitored. So it's no, there's no reason that the NIL marketplaces should be exactly like the stock market because the NIL marketplace has only recently come into existence. So there should be an expectation or at least a, um, you know, probably most people have an expectation that those will evolve over time. Yeah, we certainly know that there's inefficiencies in the stock market as well. So yes, I think to kind of put a bow on the, the NIL stuff, one thing that plays into this, that's sort of tangentially related, is all the conference realignment or the discussion of conference realignment and how those shift and change. <laughs> to me, as someone who grew up in the Midwest and I feel like every Saturday watched a Michigan football game on ABC because that was sort of what happened. The thought of USC and LA being part of the Big Ten is still hard for me to wrap my head around. But then if you look at it from an economic perspective, with the coast-to-coast sort of coverage from a Big Ten capturing that Los Angeles, I mentioned those DMAs that are there capturing that market, it makes a whole lot of sense to have that sort of coast-to-coast reach. But it also plays into... The recruiting, right? The NIL piece can play into the recruiting, but the conference realignment and the, the sort of larger uh, display that you would have as an athlete certainly plays into recruiting. So I, I wonder how that's going to impact all of these things as it sort of shakes itself out. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And I think that's, I think that has been definitely covered, but maybe slightly undercovered in terms of the recruiting advantage. Clearly these, um, as you said, I mean, obviously there's, it seems like there's going to be a substantial economic advantage for both Earlier, what happened with Oklahoma uh, University and University of Texas moving to SEC, um, and now USC and UCLA looking like they're going to move to the Big Ten. Um, It it certainly is a substantial economic advantage, and it looks like they would achieve a substantial economic uh, or substantial revenue increases, particularly based on what should be the newly negotiated Big Ten media rights deals. Um, that are projected, at least as of this moment, to be on a $1.2 billion a year basis um, in terms of the collective value of this media, right? So clearly, like, there is a substantial economic advantage. But that is also true, right? I mean, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons, uh, one of the challenges, particularly for Pac-12 schools, um, and in, in the core sports that we've talked about, but in all, you know, in a lot of other sports as well, is, is from a recruiting perspective, is do I have the opportunity to maximize um, my success in getting into, you know, the college football playoff to the, the um, you know, March Madness to postseason activity. And then can I also, you know, now with NIL, combining my on-field uh, performance goals with my off-field performance goals of what is the plat- what are the schools that are going to maximize my platform and make it likely that I can, you know, achieve my NIL goals? Um, and can, this is an opportunity now for, um, athletes to, you know, potentially maximize the value of their, you know, ma- maximize their value. And if, if, you know, if there's larger media platforms and there's more attention going on those media platforms, it, it creates, 
some form of what we would call it, I think I mentioned this earlier, content multiplier, right? Where you're able to, if you're reaching a larger audience and you're reaching a larger audience and scale, um, not only are the things that you're going to, you know, control from an own, what's called an own media perspective, like you, where you're talking about your own handles or your your school's handles, but it's more likely to get earned media, which is pick up from other distribution channels, other influencers, other content creators in ways that create these kind of content multipliers and creating a larger platform um, is certainly something that uh, to help from a recruiting perspective is certainly something um, that will be helpful should be helpful from a conference realignment perspective. But that's, you know, it's clearly something that's top of mind, you know, when you're talking about the conference media days that have been coming up, the SEC, I think is coming up either soon or may have already occurred uh, by the time this goes up. But the, you know, it's, that's clearly something that's um, the top coaches throughout the country um, in all athletic programs are thinking about, you know, NIL is certainly part of what they think about uh, um, and consider from a recruiting perspective. And the conference realignment is something that obviously plays into what they're thinking about from our recruiting perspective. There's no wonder that we covered it a lot this this season on the podcast and had a lot of guests in that space because it's such a it's a big and evolving topic that impacts so many areas, right? It impacts the actual sports that are played on the field, it impacts the athletes and where they go, it impacts the economic pieces from a university perspective, but the athletes, but also the brands that sponsor them and, and so on. So it's a really big portion of sports that is impacted by this. But I think you know another key theme that that we hit on this year in in a lot of the episodes, we talked about women's sports. You and I talked about this previously. There's a lot of conversation around women's sports and the evolution of things going back, even back to in 2021 when Chicago Sky winning WNBA championship, the continued evolution of uh, the NWSL and the, the positioning of those things. And it was really good to see a lot of those those episodes and that content this year. And hopefully we can have more of that, that going forward. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely seems like women's sports are um, starting to, uh, really starting to escalate in terms of the value of the media rights, the value of sponsorship, the value uh, uh, of events, the value of picketing. All of those consistently seem to be taking multiple steps for, forward. Um, you know, even some recent news with the the uh, European, cha- the, the women's Euros from a soccer perspective have already set a record for tickets sold for a women's Euro um, championship and it's there's still 15 at least 15 matches left to go um you know in terms of media rights deals um you know the WNBA the NWSL have or will continue to achieve significant step changes in terms of the value of their commercial rights um so the idea of and and increasingly they're you know almost seems like almost daily there are new major partnership in that uh, announcements um the the uh, uh, professional hockey league the women's professional hockey league also just announced a new city for an expansion um so you know expansions um franchise expansion whether in the nwsl wmba professional hockey uh, federation all of those continue to occur because of and i think this is something that we've talked about before um which is you know the uh female athletes can you know uh the, and we talk about even in college sports, I think women's softball outperform men's baseball um, in terms of uh, television viewership. So there certainly is interest, um, compelling interest, and that interest from that audience that, again, is compelling to um, brands and, and compelling to companies and compelling to media rights holders, um, all in the ways that we talked about previously. I mean, I think there's there's still what we would call probably an arbitrage, somewhat of an arbitrage opportunity in the fact that um, – 
if you look at the performance of women's sports, particularly across key metrics um, in, in terms of reach, sentiment, engagement, fit, all the things that we've talked about, they do perform either as well or nearly as well, but it's certainly not right now, not nearly as expensive as it is as a lot of men's sports. So there's an opportunity for brands, which I, increasingly brands are seizing to potentially, you know, generate similar you know, close to or similar um, levels of performance at a much lower price point. Um, you know, again, obviously the gap is closing, but it's still not fully closed. So there's an opportunity still for um, uh, significant investment into women's sports, but they're starting to, to bear, you know, the original investments in the women's sport are, are continuing to bear fruit. Yeah, as I saw a fascinating interview with the commissioner of the WNBA, and she was talking about how last year, 2020, was their 25th anniversary. And she said, look at where the NBA was in, in their 25th anniversary. Their, their games were on tape delay, right? And so if you look sort of the trajectory of the league and how they continue to evolve, they're on a really good upward trajectory. You mentioned sort of the partnership pieces, but even if you look at something like the NWSL, the ownership part of it, right? There's a lot yeah. of really interesting investors from whether that's other athletes or celebrities or, or people in local communities and so on. So I think that the other thing too with things like the NWSL, the media rights, you mentioned that a lot of those things from a streaming perspective and reaching different consumers and reaching consumers that are in younger demographics that are more accustomed to consuming things in a streaming way. They have been really smart moves for leagues like the NWSL and, and the WNBA too, with re- reaching fans that are in younger demographics, but that will, you know, be fans potentially for a lifetime. Yeah, I think it's definitely been helpful to have streaming platforms. I think, you know, obviously increasingly, whether it's the NWSL or um, the WNBA um, are moving towards more traditional broadcast, uh, you know, channels. But I think, yeah, I think that was definitely helpful, particularly as the leagues were getting going, um, and again, as they continue to grow. And particularly, I mean, that's obviously in, in your field, but creating direct to consumer or leveraging direct to consumer offerings for media, either major media networks um, or uh, you know. Uh, companies that are natively d- direct to consumer platforms um, are, are certainly something that women's sports will continue to leverage and use uh, in combination or in uh, concert with potentially other platforms. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it, even when you're talking about the WNBA, the NBA, NBA has seen substantial increases from a television viewership perspective. Um, there's just, you know, all the metrics and exactly what you're saying, like all the metrics and points of time. Some of that's, I think, maybe a little unfair because, you know, uh, a lot of sports in the 80s, not basketball, were on tape delay, or it's certainly not the same media environment, technology environment. Sure. So it's not totally an apples to apples comparison, but, and, you know, understandable why the, uh, the WBA commissioner would say that. But the, um, I think it's more just like, right, there's what's really important, right, is that, um, or one of the things that's important, particularly in a, in a fragmented content consumption environment, is that sports, both men's and women's sports, are able to aggregate significant audiences, uh, again, that have compelling uh, profiles from uh, advertising and partnership perspective. Um, and, you know, as particularly as women's sports seemingly continues to increase their viewership with other content, even, you know, whether it's uh, male sports at times, but also, you know, larger entertainment content seems to have lower ability to aggregate significant audiences. That that's another reason that women's sports content potentially and women's sports are potentially uh, value added value creators. What's really interesting is you talk about having a traditional broadcast footprint, but also the the NWSL having some of that too. And I get this this question a lot as media rights come up for leagues. The question is always posed to me of, are streamers going to get these rights? 
And I think in some ways we asked the wrong question there. And what I mean by that is I don't think it's a one or the other situation. I think it's an and or, right? Meaning that some of these rights will be broken up and you can get them in a direct-to-consumer way, right? But there's also still going to be a broadcast television component to that, which in the end is really beneficial for those teams and leagues because the the size of those media rights deals can expand, but then it also expands the reach of people that, that can consume that content. And then for us as, as fans and consumers, we have more options in that too. But I, I think it's a weird dichotomy sometimes to paint it as it's either going to be on broadcast or it's going to be on streaming. Whereas I think what we're going to see as more and more of these deals come up is sort of a blending of the two. Yeah, certainly in the near term and probably medium term, that, that's definitely the case. Obviously, um, not obviously, but one is interesting example is what MLS did with Apple and Apple TV. And that you know, there's certainly a guaranteed um, 250, what appears to be a $250 million a year um, um, revenue stream for MLS at making Apple TV the primary distributor of its content in a direct to consumer way with Apple, with a, a soon to be created um, MLS, you know, kind of, it, it, it's not, I think it's still being finalized, but an MLS specific um, offering from Apple TV in which the MLS would share. Um, in certain revenue, in, uh, um, there would be certain revenue and profit sharing involved with Apple um, as part of that. And that's an interesting model. But, you know, they, ML, part of the reason the MLS went with that model is to secure the rights and to, to secure the um, fees that, you know, most likely that the league was looking for. That was the way to do it. But um, there is part of the deal. All local broadcast, uh, local, national and international broadcasts are all being done soup to nuts on Apple TV. So that may be the start of something. Um, but I think, right. I mean, I think that's right now that'll be the exception rather than rule. I think you've seen it like whether it's with Amazon um, or Apple or ESPN plus or um uh, a DAZN or, you know, DAZN potentially acquiring 11 or BT Sports or, you know, I think, right, there's a combination and there's certainly, and some require by law that there has to be some form of broadcast from the air um, consumption of, of sports content. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it's not an either, it's not a, an or right now, it's an and, but certainly there's you know, potentially that'll change and maybe changing a little more rapidly than I would have been originally anticipated before that MLS deal, but that's certainly something. And the MLS deal does allow for, um, it, it does allow for broadcast. Like if you, if there are potential for Fox or ESPN to broadcast MLS games in certain forms, but you know, Apple TV will have the right to broadcast all of the games. But um, yeah, it's certainly interesting. It's certainly something that I think is worth for, uh, more discussion. Yeah, we have a whole lot to shake out in sort of the streaming space itself. If you currently look at the state of streaming and where it is with Netflix taking a beating in some ways, but if you look at Netflix traditionally, as compared to the rest of them, they actually make money as where the rest of them lose money or a lot of the rest of them lose money. So it's interesting that they've been taking a beating from a stock market perspective. However, how those streaming services shake out, Hulu is, is owned by Disney, right? And it has no brand outside of the U.S. So does that get rolled in or do they sell that off to Comcast? And then that gives their ability to put, you know, there's already the live component there. So more sports. You know, so I think you're right. In the, in the short term, there's sort of the end component. But as the streaming piece plays out further and we get more solidified there it, it could be a different direction and be sort of holistic in that so it's a lot to play out overall on that i think you know one last thing that you and i would talked about and we sort of hit on this season and an area that is 
obviously right up your alley and one that I have a, a huge interest in is really AI and machine learning in coupled with sports or coupled with sports business and, and how those really work and the interplay between the two. I think that there's oftentimes I have this in my course. We are very far from Westworld. If anybody's ever watched the show Westworld, we are not even close. But people have a fear of machines and sort of replacement of jobs and those types of things. But I think you have done a lot of work and I think you had a recent article about the augmenting of of human work done there. And I think that that's a really interesting path that we're going to be in for a little while. Yeah, I think so. The um, art, I recently wrote an article like exactly right that um, the MIT Technology Review recently did uh, uh, published um, uh, an article about a study that looked at the ability to diagnose breast cancer using um, artificial intelligence. And what it found is that the, the most accurate diagnosis, um, disease diagnosis came from when humans and artificial intelligence worked together um, in order to understand and, and diagnose um, when disease occurred. And we applied that in a sports context and that, that's something uh, my company does uh, is use artificial intelligence almost in a similar form in a, well, again, not, at, well, I should say again, certainly not as important, but it's a similar <laughs> process of identifying logos um, right. in video and in whether it's video uh, images in terms of understanding when lo logos are present in sports, um, tele whether it's television or social media content. Uh, but the larger point is the one that you're making. I think there's, you know, technology. Now, one of the things we talk, you, you mentioned about your course, it's something we talk about in my course as well. It is, you know, almost everybody who enters the sports space has to be some form or consider themselves something like a chief technology officer. Uh, and the reason we say that is that, you know, you're not necessarily going to know the ins and outs of all the technology, but you really want to know how the technology can have an impact on businesses. And one of the things that we want to say is how can technology help humans achieve and, and um, achieve the, the revenue brand business goals uh, of a specific organization. And it's often, again, working together. It's uh, similar to what you were saying before. It's not an or, but an and conversation. And how can the technology, you know, we have a, a framework that we talk about in, a, in my class, but, you know, obviously I think you have frameworks and, and ways that you think about it from a strategic perspective in your class. But again, it's really, how do we think about, you know, how can it, you know, how can it have direct and tangible impact on your business? Uh, how can it help you engage with fans, media, uh, you know, other uh, audiences that you're looking to do that? How can it drive rewards? How can it drive participation? How can it really, um, you know, and how could it potentially, you know, e even make jobs more efficient or allow you to focus on the higher value um, work that can, again, drive the maximum benefit to your organization. So that, that was really the focus. And I think that's something we'll talk about in, in future season as well. But the um, idea of what is the impact of technology on sports, I think, is growing. Um, but it really is still the, you know, it's not humans or technology. Often it's humans and technology. Yeah, you're right. An analogy I use in my course often is sort of the saber metrics, you know, back to the Bill James. At the beginning of those, it was a very, you're either on this side of the argument or the other side. You're the statistics person or you're, you know, traditional scout way. But if you look logically today, there's a melding of those two. It's another tool in the toolbox to help you make decisions. I think machines, computers are really good at brute force tasks, things that humans get tired and, and can't do at the volume and the scale that, that machines can do. And I think that, but like you said, using AI machine learning to do those things, but then have the human sort of intelligence over the top of it or interrogation of those things is is really, really valuable because, you know, like you mentioned, we see it. What I've seen, and I don't know if you've seen this more as well, 
there's always the impact of the AI machine learning in sports. We think about evaluation of players, right? We talk about that a lot, right? And that, I think that often comes to front of mind to people. But I see it so much more in sports business now from a the business perspective of teams, like you mentioned, the value of, of sponsorships like you do, but also fan engagement and you know efficiencies in stadium from a venue perspective of, of understanding that data. And so we're seeing it applied so much more to sports business. And like you said, I think that's a topic that I would really like to explore more in the next season because we're going to see so much more of it. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point about um, uh, player performance, I believe uh, that um, the Oakland A's and Billy Bean actually hired more. I mean, that was a little bit of a misconception, right, is that they would only rely on the data. Actually, the A's thought there was an opportunity to hire more scouts and more, you know, more players. It's just they wanted to potentially relieve, um, you know, some of the misconceptions that come um, you know, from idiosyncratic judgment and try to really focus again on where can scouts add the most value. And that's something that if you can't combine big data with um, more, you know, larger potential scouting, that that adds significant value for the A's. And to your point, the second point about certainly, you know, I mean, obviously one of the things, topics we talked about is, you know, the impact of technology, particularly digital technology, whether and particularly what you're talking about blockchain technology in the context of, um, you know, and fan engagement and, and certainly non-fungible tokens and the ability to um, create, um, whether it's non-fungible tokens or tokens or fan engagement platforms that leverage typically big data and, you know, uh, machine processing in order to achieve uh, is something that is something that's definitely impacting the business of sports and top of mind of business of sports outside of like cryptocurrency exchanges or cryptocurrency companies being sponsors of sports. The idea of impacting the core business, uh, other core revenue streams, like you know, in maximizing fan engagement is certainly something um, that, that has been top of mind for this uh, season and probably will be top of mind for future seasons as well. Yeah, I think you're right. As we look forward to, to next season, I think that technology piece is one that's really interesting to me. The other one, as we go forward, and I think think that has come up so much with guests that we've had, but in my course as well, with students and what they're doing post-program is the gambling angle of sports and how gambling is intertwined now with sports in creating those, not only that there's the physical experiences at stadiums, but the extension of that from a technology perspective to, to bet from a mobile, you know, on mobile devices in certain states and so on. And then on the back of that, media companies like an ESPN or dedicated media companies building programming around gambling and so on. So you're starting to see it trickle down into all aspects of that. And I think that's here to stay and only going to continue to expand. Yeah, I think recently, uh, Jim Wall Street is part of the Sportico family. He publishes a daily newsletter. He focused, I believe he focused on um, the Yes Network and its ability. You know, you talk about uh, sports betting or gambling, but even free-to-play games and the integration of free-to-play games, which are, you know, have people predict the outcomes without having to pay money, you know, just to say, here's really, it is a pure, in that case, a pure fan engagement and potentially um, people who play free to play games potentially are more likely to gamble. So it can be an affiliate marketing strategy where you can refer people potentially uh, from a data partnership perspective. But what Yes Network saw was a significant increase in the core audience engagements and encouraging increased consumption of content. Um, so that's something that was, you know, again, to your point, right, as and that was something that you know, we've talked about previously is is gambling. You know, not necessarily that um, sports leagues or teams or properties would directly benefit from gambling outside of data partnerships, the ones that are, you know, both on a professional and potentially collegiate perspective, but really, you know, increasing fan engagement, 
impacts the core revenue streams of all sports organizations. Ones we talked about in my class, whether those are in your class as well, you know, whether those are in venue, whether those media, whether those are technology, events, merchandise, intellectual property, um, hospitality. Those are all things that uh, are core uh, to the um, sports business and increasing fan engagement and audience engagement will impact those revenue streams in substantial ways. And, you know, obviously, as we you mentioned a little bit, and as we talked about already in this podcast about media rights and more likely, you know, increasing uh, fan consumption of sports content, increasing the value of media rights um, and increasing those uh, as a value uh, to increase the, the value of franchises is certainly why a lot of um, outside capital, you think of, you know, private equity, venture capital, um, family offices are looking to make investments into sports, not only because they're consistent revenue um, generators and potentially profit generators, um, even in down economic markets, but also there's still opportunity to grow with sports, you know, sports betting, sports gaming, um, being a way to to catalyze that revenue in substantial ways that should um, increase the enterprise value and franchise value uh, of those specific organizations. Yeah, I think there's a lot to continue to evolve in that. I think it's going to be a topic that, just like NIL. I think that topic's really kind of in its infancy in many ways of, of rolling that gambling experience into it. And I look forward to being able to focus on those types of things next year. But, you know, overall, it's been a great year and we really appreciate all the, the guests and the time and, and the topics that we were able to dig into. And I appreciate the time and to be able to do this with you, Adam, and get to have these cool conversations. Yeah, I appreciate the time. It's been a great season. Looking forward to the next season. And yeah, it was great to see you. It's great to talk about it. Obviously, great to hear your perspective and um, appreciate uh, the audience listening to you know to a wide variety of guests this, this season. We look forward to bringing you some new and exciting guests going forward in future seasons where we cover the topics that we've you know, talked about in this podcast and other topics that we can, you know, particularly that drive the interest and excitement in the industry um, and, and are the most important topics that we want to cover both inside and outside of our class. Absolutely. From Adam and I both, to all the listeners, we thank you for, for the participation and engagement. We really enjoyed doing this and glad that we can get that content out there. And we look forward to having one more season. So Adam, thanks. Good to catch up as always. And we'll look forward to catching up next season. Yeah. Thank you, Grace.